0: Father, thank you for the chance to be back here again, always thanking you, Father, for the chance to be in your Word. It seems uh, time moves slowly in the week between opportunity to be in your Word, and and these uh, these are the high points in my week, Father, and I thank you for that privilege. So many have lived throughout the centuries and have wanted to know you and to know your Word and have been without it. And here we have it, Father, at every turn, in book form, electronically, on the radio, television, we have so many ways to sit at your feet. And Father, we thank you that we are here tonight and we are using that opportunity you've given us. Let the word speak through your spirit, Father. Let us see the truth as it's been intended. Let us understand it in a way that changes us and causes us to live in obedience. For if these things are not the result of our study, then what is the purpose, Father? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 16 of Exodus. Tonight we're going to study... Israel moving onward. They're turning their back on Egypt and on the Pharaoh and the Red Sea, and they're going to begin to move eastward. And as we come into this next phase of the story of Exodus, it's probably appropriate to take a moment and reflect on the events that we've seen so far of the whole time, really, that Israel spent in Egypt, as well as this most recent phase of their time in the land as they left under judgments and Passed through the Red Sea. It's really a remarkable story. At the same time, it prompts a question. Surely God could have accomplished his purposes in freeing Israel with less drama and fewer special effects. If that's true, and certainly it is, he had the world of possibilities and he chose what he chose, then it tells us that the drama had purpose and that there is therefore some message in it or some meaning in it. The manner of God's work, as he caused Israel to be set free and redeemed them from slavery and brought them through the Red Sea, all of that was designed to communicate an eternal message to us. So the manner has purpose. And the details of that drama were carefully crafted by God to create pictures for coming events in God's plan. For example, we've already noted how the judgments on Egypt and the redemption of Israel out of slavery pictures the coming salvation of Israel in the last days of tribulation. So we've talked about that at several points. We've also looked at how the Passover judgment was a picture of Christ. And then last week we added another picture to the list created by that Red Sea crossing that in the way God redeemed those in bondage to sin, that involves a movement through water, which pictures baptism. So in the way that Israel moved out of slavery through baptism, as it were, in the Red Sea and toward the holy mountain of God, that That larger motif pictures the movement of a believer from unbelief in the world to salvation, to a baptism that leads us ultimately to an encounter with God in the kingdom. We're going to continue to see these pictures. They have not ended, not in the least, far from it. They're just beginning. In fact, they continue all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. Not that we will, but they do. The drama of the Exodus and the 40 years of wandering that follow are absolutely stuffed with pictures of later events that are programmed to occur in God's prophetic plan. So when we look at what's happening here with the exodus itself, with all that comes afterward, the mountain and the time of the wandering, which we don't study, of course, in this class, but as you know, come later in the books of Moses, that whole set of events were so dramatic and so unique for the purpose of telling a story about humanity's relationship with God and his plan for humanity throughout the ages. I think of it like a play in which even the actors themselves are unaware of how God is using their lives in this way. Of course, that can be said about all of us at some level. But in this case, it's a dramatic display of God's sovereignty in the lives of individuals. We're going to see more pictures tonight. And so with that introduction, I wanted to set your mind on the topic or on the idea that we're looking for pictures as we study the events of of this book. So going back to the story now, the nation is moving from the seashore of the Gulf of Aqaba. That was the location that I came to conclude was the crossing point for the Red Sea. And they have reached a place called Elim. And Elim is their first stopping point after the crossing on their way to Mount Horeb, that mountain of God that Moses has been commanded to bring the nation to. So we'll begin at the last verse of chapter 15, which is the Last place we were. We didn't get to that last verse last week. And we are looking now at the point where they have crossed and camped. So verse 27 of chapter 15. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. And they camped there besides the water. So Israel has moved across the Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of the Red Sea. They have camped directly opposite in Midian, and they reach a place called Elim. Now, the mention of Elim gives us an opportunity to revisit something concerning place names in the Exodus story. I want to revisit how we're to look or how to understand place names when we see them in the story of Exodus. For example, the place of Elim in this case. The exact location of most of the places named in the book of Exodus have been lost to history. In a few cases, we have some geological basis for estimating their location. But in most cases, the generally accepted sites associated with Exodus, the ones you may see on maps in your Bible, are, to put it bluntly, fiction. They're guesses, and they're guesses largely without any archaeological finding. For example, the locations mentioned after the crossing From the Red Sea, places like Mara, the waters that were bitter, and now Elam, which we will study tonight a little bit, are places that are traditionally put here, up on the point where some have theorized that the nation crossed. That is the Gulf of Suez. Why do they put them there? Because they assumed a Suez crossing. Not because there was anything there to say those locations should be placed there. Not just those two, but Mount Sinai, It's been placed in two different locations traditionally. There's a northern route and there's a southern route. The wilderness of Zin, the wilderness of Shur, all of these places are located largely on the basis of tradition, not on the basis of hard fact or geology or or archaeology. These are three traditional views for the routes of the Exodus. The blue has them going sort of down that southern route and ending up at the traditional location of Mount Sinai. The black has them going through a different crossing on the north and going to a northern Mount Sinai. The white has them crossing part of the Mediterranean over some strait. I mean, why did not they put them on a cruise ship, for crying out loud, and just sail them around the Med for a while for all that matters. So all of these are tradition. And the reason they can even have multiple traditions is to the point that we don't have anything to root any one tradition to something hard and fast on the ground. What we do have, though, is the Bible, And we have what scripture gives us. And as much as we can stay with scripture, we'll end up somewhere close, even if we can't pinpoint locations. In all of these references, we have to be very careful. Even Peninsula Sinai. Historically, the peninsula was not called Sinai. Historically, it's been called Paran. In other words, the mountain did not take its name from the peninsula. The peninsula took its name from the mountain because someone assumed the mountain was in the southern tip of this peninsula. So they started calling the whole peninsula Sinai. So if you're thinking, well, how can we locate the mountain outside of Sinai? After all, that is Sinai. You've got it backwards. They started calling the peninsula after the mountain. And so if the mountain isn't actually there, then we should never have started to call the peninsula by it either. I mean, they they go together, in other words. Depending on where you choose to believe the mountain is, these things can change. So the point to remember as we study through this account, and as you may consult your maps in reference as I teach, the point here is that the locations should be taken with a large dose of salt from any source, including me. Since I have already expressed my point of view on the location of the Red Sea crossing, then naturally I'm going to continue to place the next series of locations accordingly. So as I see the crossing as being here at the point across the Gulf of Akbar, then you would naturally expect that the next things that follow will be placed here on the eastern side of the Gulf of Akbar in western Midian. And so you should expect that consistency and uh, you can obviously feel free to take a different route if you feel led. But this is what I will be teaching. So naturally, I'm going to tell you that the place of Elam is somewhere directly east of the Gulf of Akba in Midian. But don't be surprised if your Bible maps tell you otherwise. As Israel walks now into the desert, their attention is shifting from fear of Pharaoh and fear of Egypt and the chariots to more mundane concerns. They're going to reach a resting place now in the desert where they're going to camp for some time. And at this place, they find, we're told, 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. The word for Elam is actually a plural word for the Tamarisk tree. And a Tamarisk tree traditionally is either a cedar or a palm tree. So it's likely that they named this location. It wasn't named before they got there. They named it and they named it Elam because it was a collection of palms. When you hear the numbers 12 and 70, you can't help but notice the biblical significance of those numbers, right? Both 12 and 70 are just too perfect to be coincidence. They testify to God's provision in this place. Moses has now taken the people through the Red Sea and led them to this oasis, which the Lord has evidently prepared for them, prepared for this very moment. In fact, I assume Moses knew where it was. I assume he knew to bring them here. How would he have known that? Well, remember, he spent 40 years living in this land. This is his backyard. And he must have understood that there was somewhere nearby he could camp close to 2 million people and find enough water to support them. And so he leads them to this oasis. The precise number of springs and of palms communicates that God has prepared Moses for this purpose as their leader. God brought Moses to Midian, left him there long enough to get a lay of the land. And then when the time came to lead Israel back, Moses is already prepared. He ensured that Moses would know where to find water in the desert. The message to Israel is simple. God is going to rescue you and continue to take care of you through the men he has appointed. That's, by the way, the meaning of the numbers 12 and 70. In Scripture, the number 12 and the number 70 have similar meanings. They both mean God ruling his people through men. Through the 12 apostles, through the 70 who translated the Septuagint, through the 70 elders of Israel who will come along later, these numbers have become associated with men ruling under God's authority. The very fact that Moses chose to count the springs and count the trees and record his count in the book that he writes is proof to us that Moses understood their significance and wanted you to understand it also. Both numbers he knew were associated with God's endorsement of his leadership and it was a communication to the people as well. So Israel camps here for about three weeks and they stay in this spot until setting out again now traveling to the mountain of Moses. We hear that in the first verse of chapter 16. So in chapter 16 we hear then they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So one month from their exodus from Egypt, they set out, From Elam and into the wilderness of sin, it's called. And never has there been a place more appropriately named than the wilderness of sin. It's a place located somewhere between wherever Elam was, which is now located to their west, and Mount Horeb, which they're still headed toward, which is still somewhere to their east. They're somewhere in between. And here we go again, Israel grumbling. The word grumbling would most literally be translated murmuring, actually, It's a form of complaining that's done behind a leader's back. A complaint behind a leader's back. This is worse in some respects than direct confrontation because it leads potentially to an organized opposition and insurrection. The irony should be obvious to us at this stage. A few days earlier, the Lord had demonstrated through that provision of 12 and 70 that he was making provision for Israel through the leadership of Moses. And now Israel's murmuring against that very leadership. A few short days later, because now we don't have water and palms at our disposal. They see God at work, but they forget. They hear his words, but they do not believe. They say if they have to die, they would rather have died as slaves in Egypt, sitting around with meat and bread, than to have died with their freedom and nothing to eat. They're longing for their past life. They're thinking in positive terms about where they were and in negative terms about where they are. The life they had prior to God's redeeming of them is preferable to the life they're experiencing now. Jesus taught concerning this principle of turning your head back to the life you once had when he spoke to the disciples. He's taught this in Luke 9, 57. He says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It would take a little time to exposit this properly, and I do that in the Luke study if you're interested. But in short, each protest here is self-evidently a pathetic excuse hiding a more serious objection to following Jesus. And that more serious objection, of course, is unbelief. So their pathetic excuses are really just a screen, a smoke screen, to obscure the real problem in their heart. Jesus draws a conclusion about these people from these three excuses using an analogy of working a field on a farm. Working the plow behind a team of oxen was unpleasant work. It was demanding work. It puts you outside in the sun and in the sweat of the brow and walking behind animals that are pooping in front of you and you know, plowing up the dirt, and it's not fun work. It's hard work. It would have been far easier for someone, if they had the choice, to stay in the farmhouse. And the farmhouse is where you had a sense of comfort. You had a chance to be more relaxed. And on the other hand, following the lore by analogy was work that would mean leaving the comforts of life behind, leaving those things aside and working in the field that God provides. So if someone walks out into the field, so to speak, places their hand on the plow, but then longs for the chance to go back into the farmhouse where they would prefer to be, they were revealing themselves to be posers. They may have walked out into the field. But their heart wasn't in the work. This is how it is for this generation of Israel. The Lord has freed them as a nation, but on an individual level, the people now who make up this larger entity of Israel, those individual members of the nation, they are not responding to the truth of God's work and of his call. Their repeated longing for the life they had in Egypt is proof that they are not fit for the kingdom of God. As Jesus said in one of those examples, let the dead bury the dead. The dead of spirit, in other words, bury those who have died physically. This is a theme that we've already announced would be evident in the text. We'll see it come up repeatedly tonight and in future weeks. Exodus 16, verse 4. Look at the response. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. So, in response, the Lord alerts Moses that he's going to answer their need with a provision, but this provision is going to come with a test. The Lord is going to rain bread down from heaven, which is obviously a reference to a miraculous provision of food for the people. That provision comes in a very unique and certain way, and it comes with special restrictions. And by these restrictions, God is putting a test on the people. And the question is, are they going to follow the Lord's commands and his instructions or not? Now, this is the second time we've heard the Lord mention testing the people. He did that at an earlier point when they were at the waters that were bitter, if you remember. When the Lord uses the word test in this way, it carries exactly the same meaning ...that we have when we use the word test. A test is anything that determines whether something is true or right. We test precious metals to know if it's pure. We test students to know if they have the right knowledge. We test water to know if it's pure. So we understand the sense of the word. It's to determine if something is pure and right. The Lord tests hearts to know whether they have the faith that they claim. In this case... The test is, will that double portion on the sixth day be sufficient for them? Will their hearts trust in the Lord's provision or will they not refrain from gathering and instead go out in disobedience on the seventh day? That's the test. So for six days, they go out on the seventh day. They don't. Will they obey that restriction? Now, the curious thing about the Lord testing men's hearts is that we know the Lord himself doesn't need a test in order to know men's hearts. The Lord already knows everything about every heart. So why does he bother to devise tests to determine things he knows already? Well, the the answer is the test isn't for his benefit. It's for the benefit of the people themselves and for us, the reader. Israel themselves will see that they fail the Lord's tests and as they sojourn in the desert, their, their own knowledge of self is made available. Likewise, their ancestors, the Jews that will come in centuries later, they'll be able to look back on this moment and have the proper perspective concerning the nature of their own forefathers. Altogether, this generation of Israel is going to fail a total of ten tests. That number ten in Scripture is a number that means testimony. It can be negative testimony, it can be positive testimony. It's simply like you think of a witness on a witness stand giving testimony. The number ten is testifying to the truth. And after they fail the 10th test, you may know what comes. That is the moment when the Lord declares that they have now tested him these 10 times. And as a result, they will not enter into his rest, into the promised land. But instead, they will wander for 40 years until death in the desert. After 10 times of testing, he makes that declaration. We can know that the Lord anticipated these acts of disobedience. We can know that he saw all of this coming. And then, of course, the resulting wandering period merely because he provides bread from heaven. Well, how do I mean that? Well, when the nation left Egypt, they had plenty of food with them to sustain them. If their stay in the desert was only going to be for a relatively short time. I mean, they left Egypt with thousands of herds and those herds could have sustained the nation with milk and with meat for quite some time. The nation would have lacked other kinds of foods. Maybe their diet would have been a bit monotonous. But nonetheless, they wouldn't have been starving. They certainly wouldn't have been in threat of death. Certainly not imminent death. But because the Lord anticipated this long 40-year period of wandering in the desert, he makes available this supernatural food source right from the beginning. That's our evidence, among others, that the Lord isn't testing this people for his own sake. He knows where this is going. He's already made provision for it. The testing is so that they would know and we would know why things come out the way they do. He is testing them to reveal their hearts. Going forward, verse 9, then Moses says to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel speak to them saying at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp when the layer of dew evaporated behold on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake like thing fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some gathered little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess and he who had gathered little had no lack every man gathered as much as he should eat moses said to them let no man leave any of it until morning but they did not listen to moses and some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and became foul and moses was angry with them they gathered it morning by morning every man as much as he should eat but when the sun grew hot it would melt we'll stop there let's Try to understand what God is doing here. Notice Moses is still using Aaron to speak for him in all of these meetings with the congregation that will continue. Moses directs Aaron to call the nation together to see what the Lord is now going to do in response to their grumbling. And in that moment, the Lord's glory appears in the cloud and the Lord speaks to Moses with his instructions. He promises meat in the evening and bread in the morning. Now, the meat comes in the form of quail. The nation would catch them in the evening as they're flying, we assume. The bread, though, is unique. It's a supernatural provision from heaven each morning. The bread comes, we're told, with the dew in the morning and it's deposited on the surface of the desert ground. Moses even takes time here to describe it to us here and then again later in this chapter. That suggests strongly, at least to me, that this is a unique substance. This is unlike anything you'd find in nature on its own. And therefore, he felt the need to explain it a little bit so that we'd have some understanding of what they had back in that day. He calls it a fine, flake-like thing. But the word in Hebrew here that's used is used only here. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. So it's a very unique word. We don't really have anything to cross-reference it by. So it's a bit of a mystery. It is fine, I think, in the sense that it is small and delicate. There's other references to this elsewhere in the five books of Moses, to suggest it's round and probably about double the size of a pea. So it's a round object on the ground, not very large, maybe the size of a nickel. And if it's left on the hot sun, it melts away so that there's not a permanent gathering of it on the ground. When the nation first sets eyes on it, they react like a three-year-old being shown Brussels sprouts. What is it? In Hebrew, the words, what is it, are manna. And hence the name that the nation gives to the bread. They call it, what is it? Or maybe it became a little faster. What's it? (laughs) So Moses answers by telling the nation to their question of what is it? They say, this is the bread that the Lord has provided. Notice the Lord always calls it bread. The Lord never calls it anything other than bread. In fact, it can be fashioned, we're told later, and boiled or baked, just like any other grain would be. So Truly, the Lord is providing the nation with a grain of some kind that supplies them with the basic ingredient for bread. And that's important to understand. God is providing literally the formation of bread for the people of Israel. And it's not something they just picked off the ground and ate. You would take time to prepare it into meals made like you would any other grain. It's also important to dispel a myth here concerning God's provision for Israel in the desert. Israel did not survive on manna alone. I mean, here you see them having quail in the evenings. So they have meat at night, they have bread in the morning. They didn't always have quail, later books tell us that, but they did at times. But you have to remember, they also have their livestock. They've got goats which produce milk, and they can make things from the milk. Those same animals can be occasionally killed and used for roasts. They can eat that meat when they feel like it. Those animals are reproducing, they're making more meat all the time. They also were told, don't live in isolation, They interact with the other cultures around them as they wander in those 40 years. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God actually commands them to trade with the Edomites when they're living in the land of Seir. And through that trade, they actually acquire a whole variety of foods that they eat along the way. Though they are getting a substantial portion of their food out of God's supernatural provision, and it is an essential element, without it, they'd have no grain in the desert. Nonetheless, it is not to say they're like prisoners eating crackers 24 hours a day for 40 years. God is providing them with a nutritious and to a degree varied diet. But he's supplementing it in a very critical way. Bread for them becomes that staple that without which they probably couldn't have survived for 40 years. Certainly not in a healthy way. The gathering process is itself proof of the Lord's goodness and of his wisdom and of his power. He instructs Israel to collect an omer of this bread for each person. In the household, now an omer is two quarts or about 1.9 liters. The allotted amount of that bread per person was two quarts a day. If you've done any baking with grain, two quarts is the equivalent of eight cups. And eight cups makes a lot of bread for one person. So there's a lot of food in that two quarts. During the gathering, we're told some seem to gather more than others. So they didn't measure in the field. They just gathered in the field. Came home, now it's time to measure. They start pouring it into a container that could measure out an omer. And sure enough, even though some had come home with a lot and some had come home with less, when they measured it all out, everyone had exactly an omer. So the one who gathered more had made up for the ones who had gathered less without any pre-coordination or effort to try to force that outcome. God, in his sovereign power, was ensuring that provision. It all measured out evenly. That precision is testimony to God's handiwork. And to his loving provision. Finally, having gathered their daily bread, the nation was told not to hoard it, not to store it up for some future day. Eat what you had each day. Be content with that. Wait for the next day. But in verse 20, the nation ignores God's instructions. At least some did. They store it, or at least they try to store it. But if they stored it, it became worm-infested and foul. It became pointless, in other words, to store it. Understandably, Moses is angry with them over this act of disobedience. And he knows what's at stake here. He understands that what's going on is a test and they're failing these tests. They're failing this step of obedience. And he's angry with righteous anger. The hoarding was a sin, but that wasn't actually the test for God in this particular example. The test he had constructed had to do with the seventh day, the seventh day requirement. So let's look at that. Verse 22. Now, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered. And it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So Moses explains here the purpose of the seventh day was now to be a Sabbath for the nation of Israel. On the sixth day of each week, they get this double provision. They'd be able to collect twice as much of the bread from the ground. And that would now be sufficient to last for the two days to cover the day of the Sabbath. That eliminated the need for them to go out on the Sabbath. That gave them now a day of rest from the gathering. So now the test comes. And the test is whether the nation would trust the word of the Lord and remain in their houses, therefore, and not go out and try to gather. There's not going to be bread on the ground anyway, but would the people go looking is the question. The test was whether their hearts desired to store up treasure in heaven or to store up treasure on earth. Would they trade obedience to God's word for earthly gain or for the prospect of earthly gain? Since they already had enough for the next day, all they could be doing by going out is to try to hoard or gain something in excess of their need and in excess of God's provision, God's intent, God's will for them. God's supply of bread from heaven in this way conveys a beautiful picture of God's provision. God will meet our physical needs. Scripture tells us he will meet our needs in a daily way. Even the Lord's prayer reminds us of that. That God's heart is to meet our need for daily bread. Jesus taught of how the Lord knows our needs. And like the lilies in the field or the birds in the trees, he will ensure that we have what we need. That provision for Israel is a picture of what he does for his children generally. Keep in mind, of course, there's a big difference between what you want and what you need. And that difference is often what causes us consternation or wants often go well beyond our needs. Secondly, the supply comes as a daily provision, sufficient For our needs, there is never a lack, nor is there an excess in the way he provides it for Israel. And though I don't want to become too dogmatic about these details, I think as a general principle, that's true. That when we are truly in his will, following his will, we will find ourselves sufficiently cared for without lack or excess. I think in general, it's not God's heart to lavish us with excess for to do so is a temptation at least and a ruin at worst. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, don't give me so little that I might become a thief or so much that I might forget you. So God is faithful in his provision. We can trust that each day will bring us what we need. Finally, when we live in faith to his promise to provide, we relieve ourselves from much of the burden of seeking for our needs. When we store up beyond our need or we strive for something beyond what's required, we are beginning to move away from living in faith and we are unnecessarily taking on the burdens that his daily provision was intended to eliminate. Now, I'm not talking about idleness, but we're talking about how the need for more drives decision-making that burdens us, if nothing else, just with the care of it, the storage of it, the cleaning of it, the repairing of it. Did Joseph violate this when he laid up for seven years under God's direction for for the nation? No, there's storing for some greater purpose beyond yourself versus hoarding for your own sake out of a heart that does not trust that there will be for tomorrow. But there's still ways in which saving, preparing for some known need in the future. Those things are not irrational. Those are certainly not by themselves an evidence of lack of faith. But there is a difference. There's a line there. And I think we we feel it in our heart when we know when we've crossed it. And, And scripture can bring that to our mind if we. If we let ourselves be convicted appropriately. So God is faithful in the provision. We can trust that he will take care of us. So there is no purpose in assuming the greater burden of preparing for the possibility that God won't be there when we need him. It's a fruitless kind of pursuit. And by our actions, we reveal a lack of trust in our hearts when we try to do what the Israelites did here, which is ignore what they had thinking they needed more because they had enough. They had their seventh day provision sitting in their jars so why did God institute this supernatural provision for the nation of Israel, bread coming down from heaven? Once again, doesn't this seem a bit unnecessarily dramatic? I mean, he could have had, like he did with the quail, he could have had a herd of cattle wander in every now and then. They could have wandered onto a field of grain every now and then. I mean, they did that with the dates and the, and the water, right? But this is clearly beyond what's norm, and God has gone to the effort to make this possible. What's the message in it? Well, as we said earlier, the method is part of the message. God is creating a powerful picture that he intended to draw from in history and scripture later on. So he lays this groundwork so that in centuries to come, he can point back to it and make comparisons and teach from it. Bread from heaven becomes a powerful picture of Christ. Bread is a staple of physical life. Whether you're talking here about their mana or our own grain supply, without that daily staple of life, the body eventually dies. So by sending bread down from heaven in such a dramatic way, the Lord establishes this indelible picture of Christ, the bread of life, descending from heaven as Christ did. He is the staple of our spiritual life. We must eat that spiritual food to survive spiritually, just as we have to eat as the Israelites had to eat the bread of manna if they were to survive physically. And even more, Jesus gave us his flesh literally as a sacrifice to ensure Spiritual life. He is literally bread in that sense. John's Gospel is the quintessential book of Scripture that endeavors to explain Old Testament pictures as they are fulfilled in Christ. If you haven't noticed that, by the way, in John's Gospel, it's a great refreshment to think about it this way when you read his Gospel. Notice that every chapter is almost a vignette of its own, and each one is designed to take an idea or a theme from the Old Testament and show how Christ is the fulfillment of it. Water, blindness, bread, there's all these motifs that he builds out through the story. The chapter related to the bread of life is John chapter 6. And it's devoted to revealing Jesus as the bread of life. Now, in the beginning of that chapter, in the very beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish. Obviously, that miracle impressed everyone who saw it. And it left many of them desiring for more of the same. After that miracle, we're told, Jesus and the disciples get on boats and cross the Sea of Galilee and go to the other side to Capernaum, leaving the crowd behind. But, of course, that doesn't suffice for the crowd because they want more bread. So they know where they've gone. They they see them cross. And by the next day, they've met up with Jesus and the disciples. So as he arrives on the other side, the crowd's there to greet him. And, of course, it's a bit of a surprise to see all these people on the other side of the water. He just left them there. Now they're all over on this side again. So in John chapter 6, verse 24... So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes. But for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him, the father God has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, well, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So this crowd is an unbelieving crowd. So you need to read as you study this chapter and you look at everything they say. You need to read those words as coming from unbelievers. Now, what a remarkable thing that they could stare at the living God in his form, in his physical form. And yet that is still not sufficient to cause belief in their heart. They sought for the physical bread that he had just given them on the other side, not for the spiritual food that he was truly there to provide. And when Jesus points out their unbelief, they counter by saying they are willing to believe if only they would receive a sign. Please, can we have a sign? Never mind, they'd already witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Not enough for you? No, No, apparently not. In fact, they demand yet more signs. And in doing so, they prove what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 he says in 1 Corinthians 122 for indeed Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness but to those who are called both Jew and Greek Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God these people would never believe in Jesus, no matter how many signs they witnessed, no matter how many times he did what they asked. They weren't believing because they were not experiencing the call of God and the power of God in their hearts. Ironically, and here's our connection, they point to Moses and the manna that came down in his day as reason for their doubts. They try to justify their doubts on that basis. And here's what they mean. The reason they mention Moses and the manna is to imply That if Jesus wants them to follow him, like he's asking them to do, then Jesus should be prepared to provide bread on a daily basis. Moses was the leader of our people at that time, and he was doing it every day. So if you think you can be our leader today, you ought to do this more than just once. That's the implication of their statement. That's why in verse 34, they asked Jesus, always give us this bread. They see a cheap meal ticket In response, Jesus draws their attention to the spiritual meaning of manna. In other words, this earlier provision that was so supernatural, so dramatic, and you might even argue a bit unnecessary, really. Now we see its purpose, ultimately, in that Jesus has this opportunity in his own teaching to draw the comparison. He says the spiritual meaning of manna was that it pictures God's provision of the Messiah himself. It's not a picture of God giving us food. It is an example of how God provides us food, but it's a picture of how God provides us Christ. He says in verse 22, it's not Moses who brought you bread, but the Lord. Moreover, the Lord wasn't intending to sustain Israel in that day physically. He was intending to picture himself and his spiritual sustainment. And those who will come to that provision of Christ will never hunger again and never thirst again. Now, we know that those statements cannot mean physically because even Christians get hungry proof of that is that we bring food to this bible study every time right and we certainly get thirsty after we we eat that food so there is no doubt that we continue to experience physical need his point then is obviously spiritual once you know christ you know there is nothing else you need spiritually once you know christ you stop seeking for something better but the ones who do not know him and yet appear to come to him will still after having held the plow look back think about egypt Think about something they lack and they wish they could go back to. So the Lord delivered bread to Israel from heaven because he wanted to illustrate this spiritual message. And the message is that God is the provider of life and that life can be extended from the physical to the spiritual through the provision of Jesus, the bread of life. Only those who accept him will be fed with that spiritual bread, as Jesus told the crowd. And go further in that chapter in verse 47 of John 6. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. That last statement got even the disciples nervous because at that point they start backing away like, "Okay, this has gone a little creepier than we expected. We don't want to go any further. And then Jesus says, you're not leaving, too, are you? The point is, he was speaking on a spiritual level and they were hearing it exclusively at the physical level and missing the point. Moving back to Exodus 16, we also notice the arrival of a Sabbath ordinance, right? This moment is the first moment in Scripture that a Sabbath requirement is given to men. Now, this is important to note. This is often an area of theology that's debated. People don't understand it in my experience very well. Notice this moment comes before the giving of the law formally at the mountain in the way that God provides the fullness of the Sabbath and all the restrictions that come with the Sabbath. That's when you see it formally conveyed in the covenant. But now you see God introducing it to Israel in small steps. And the first time they hear of it is now here in connection with the manna. We're going to study the Sabbath more in a future lesson. But for now, it's just important to understand that observing a Sabbath day rest was not a requirement for men prior to this moment for anyone. And even now that it has arrived, God is delivering it only to this group of people, to the nation of Israel. And it never goes beyond them. Because as it's codified in the law, it becomes part of the law. And as the law itself is fulfilled in Christ, Christ is our Sabbath. We rest in Him by faith. We no longer have the obligation to observe it in a lesser form, that is, in the law. So the Sabbath, in all its restrictions was not a part of humanity until this moment and did not extend beyond the nation of Israel. It's not wrong, by the way, to observe a Sabbath rest in whatever form you prefer. What we're saying is it's not a requirement. So how did Israel respond to the Lord's test? Verse 27. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So unsurprisingly, the nation fails the test. They go out, they gather on the seventh day anyway. Of course, they find nothing, just as Moses said. I want you to consider what kind of heart has God's provision in a jar, sitting at home, promised and delivered, and yet still feels compelled to give up their rest, to go searching for something they told they won't find. What kind of heart? The Lord knows their heart, and by this test, we can now know it too. The Scripture's testimony concerning this generation of Israel is absolutely crystal clear. Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 3:7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked Me in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where their fathers tried Me by testing Me, and they saw My works for forty years, Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Meanwhile, the Lord gives Moses instructions to the nation concerning how they are to memorialize his faithfulness. Verse 31 through 36. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and it tastes like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, an omer is a tenth of an ephah. So just very quickly, Moses gives us a little more detail concerning this mysterious bread from heaven. He says it's like a coriander seed, white, with it tastes a little bit like sweet crackers, I guess. Knowing that it can be used to make bread, we can assume that it must have contained all the ingredients necessary to form bread, meaning it was a grain. It probably had a certain degree of sugar in it. That's the sweetness. It probably had some salt, perhaps some yeast. So grain, salt, Sugar, yeast, sounds like beer. This is coriander, so you can use that as an example. That's not manna. I don't actually have a picture of manna, but that's just in case anybody was a little confused about what I was putting up on the screen. Then God says, I want you to take some of this manna, omerful, put it in a jar, keep it as a testimony, as a way of preserving for future generations evidence of what I've done for you here. Even though he said you're not supposed to store this stuff, in this case now, it doesn't spoil. I mean, here you can see God's supernatural effort right there. He says, put it before the testimony. Now, that's interesting because the testimony refers to the tablets of the law. But the tablets don't exist yet. At this point, in the wanderings, they haven't received the law. Clearly, Moses is writing about these events at a later point, looking back on them and knowing what God eventually did. So he then comments further saying that this manna was what they ate for 40 years. That statement means he wrote this book near the very end of their time in the desert. Notice Moses says the provision continued until they reached the border of Canaan. Now, the only way he knew that is this was being written literally as he stood on the doorstep of death because he dies right as they reach that point and before they go into the land of Canaan. So he's writing this book and therefore the others, we assume, right at the very end. The next chapter, we're going to look at the first part of chapter 17. It completes this picture of how the Lord was providing. And it gives us a similar scenario, only now the concern is water. Verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Riphidim. And there was no water for the people to to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with these people? A little more and they will stone me. So they journey. we're told, in stages until they reach a place called Rephidim. And this is a place with no water supply. And as you're going to see in, in verse six, this is a place immediately next to the mountain of Horeb. So we don't see that just yet. But when we get there, we'll notice they've made it all the way to the mountain. This rock sits at the base of Mount Horeb. And they're going to spend, actually, the better part of a year living in this encampment. So the, the term Rephidim is the name for the encampment of Israel at the base of Mount Horeb. This is a place with no water. And when we get a little further in the text of Exodus, we'll come to a day when we will actually look at where this mountain is more than likely. And if I'm right, you're going to notice this is a place where it's pretty desolate. It's dry. They get, like I said, about an inch or less of water a year from the rain. So there's no hope for them to have any water when they camp here. So once again, by the way, we don't know where this is exactly, but my view is that this is a place called Jabal al-Alaz. It's a mountain in northwest Saudi Arabia. And in the region directly around this mountain is a flat plain where we can propose that this group of 2 million plus could have camped. We'll get to that later. So as the nation camps here in this place with no water, here's that familiar pattern again. The people want for a basic need. Now it's water. They grumble. They blame Moses. They fail to trust God to provide. Moses turns to God and says, what do you want me to do with these people? Moses says, they are grumbling against me, I know, but they're really testing God. They're really grumbling against him. They're going to test God with their unfaithfulness. Now, this is an interesting use of the word test again, because while the Lord may test our hearts, it is sin for us to test the Lord. Because of the meaning of the word again. To test the Lord is to ask the Lord to prove himself to be true. He does not honor those kinds of tests. He does nothing to justify those kinds of tests. This is different than, for example, a Gideon-style test in which Gideon is trying to discern the Lord's will. That's different. These people know the Lord's will. They know his will is to provide. They know his track record is to provide. And yet they continue to assume otherwise. And in that false assumption, they are testing the Lord, testing his patience, testing his goodness. So again, the people make a ridiculous claim. They say, we're going to die out here. And they blame Moses. So Moses asks God, what do you want me to do with these people? And the Lord responds with a miraculous provision to answer Moses' intercession. So verse 5 through 7. Then the Lord says to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff, that which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place... Massah and Mirabah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Moses is told now to strike a rock that sits at the base of Mount Horeb. And out of that rock, literally out of solid rock, water pours out. In fact, as you're going to learn, it pours forth with such force that it creates a small lake in the desert, as we'll study here in a second out of the Psalms. Psalm 78 specifically tells us about the significance of this event. Psalm 95 also gives us more detail. He names it Massah and Mirabah. The two words mean test and quarrel because of the way the nation of Israel continues to say, is the Lord among us or not? Here's what's being said by the people. Was this really the act of God or not? Did God really bring us out here or has this whole thing just been our imaginations? After all they've seen, they're still questioning whether this is truly God at work in all the miracles. I don't know how you could not be stunned by that question. They've seen an unprecedented display of God's power and goodness, and they still find reasons to question his presence. I wonder if they ask the question, is God still with us, as they stoop down every morning to pick up the manna that miraculously appeared. It's powerful proof of the depravity and the deadness of an unbelieving heart. Only an unbeliever could witness what these people witnessed on a daily basis and still find cause to ask, is God with us or not? I want to read out of Psalm 78 and again out of Psalm 95. This is the psalmist's commentary on what we just looked at. Psalm 78, verse 15. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him to rebel against the most high in the desert and in their heart. They put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 95, it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. Let me tell you, folks, anyone who is said by God to not trust in his salvation, have hard hearts, have been loathed by God to have erred in their hearts and to have not known his ways and would not enter his rest. To me, that is a compelling argument that these were an unbelieving generation, an unsaved generation who nonetheless, for God's purposes alone, were ushered through a great redemption and provided through many years in the desert. For his name's sake, And he is a good God to do that. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder, Father, that we walk in faith with a God who loves and a God who provides and a God who cares. But a God who places before us the expectation of obedience and a striving toward holiness in his power by the Spirit's work in our hearts. And, and a God who knows when we do not seek to serve him in in our obedience, when he sees us falling short. He knows these things. There is no secret. Nothing goes beyond his notice. So I pray that, Father, you would remind us that you have these expectations, that your provision is everlasting and that your goodness knows no bounds, that your salvation is eternal. And yet you ask us to honor you by living a life that is a sacrifice to your name. We may never earn what you give without payment. We can never Uh, reach the holiness of the one who died in our place, but we can seek to serve you with all our mind, soul, heart, and strength. We ask, Father, that you would uh, encourage us onward in that life. Let us come back here again to learn as you give us opportunity. Let us seek to serve others and to testify concerning what we know. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.